All right. We are in the series, Knowledge of the Holy. And for the last, from the time that we started the series up until a couple weeks ago, we were talking about the incommunicable attributes. These are the attributes that God does not share or that he does not communicate with anyone else. They are the attributes that belong to God alone. They are what make God who he is. And so we talked about his aseity. We talked about how God is so completely other, that there is nothing in the same category as God because he's God and that's what makes him God, that he is so unique, that he is uncreated. He is the creator God. And we talked about his sovereignty and how that looks, that he is all present everywhere, that he is all powerful. There is nothing that is more powerful than God and that he, or even equal to power with him. And that he is all-knowing, that he is omniscient, that there is nothing that he does not know. He knows uh, the eternal past, present, and future. He knows each and every one of us so personally, individually. And then we talked about how God is immutable, that he is unchanging in all of his attributes. He will never change. He will always remain, that he is the only constant thing. And so now, as we jump in, we're finally to the communicable attributes. These are the attributes that he does communicate, that he does share with creation. And so when we talked about the incommunicable Every time that we were talking about maybe God's uh, omniscience, there's a desire inside myself. I'm reaching for that. There's, I want to be all-knowing. For someone like me, I really struggle with God being all-powerful. I'm thankful for it, but I want all the power. I want to be in control of things rather than to surrender. And so these incommunicable attributes, as we learned about them of who God is, our response to these were how we surrender that to him, how we submit to him in that, and we worship him uh, as God. And, and when we come to these communicable attributes, these are the attributes that he does, in fact, share with us, that we do get to walk in, that he wants to transform us in. Um, and so tonight, kicking off the communicable attributes, we are talking about God being holy. And uh, holiness is so unique and so important um, that we named the, the series after it. Well, we stole it from um, a book. Uh, but we call it Knowledge of the Holy. Um, because this attribute, God's holiness... Uh, is, is so unique, and that the way we've talked about how all of the attributes go together, but tonight we're really going to get an understanding of what God's holiness is, uh, and we're going to develop that as we continue to talk about all of the other communicable attributes. His incommunicable are obviously completely holy, uh, but holiness is one of the attributes, uh, one of the words even in the Bible that we just see so much. Um, and so when we're talking about holy, we have this idea where we're looking at these definitions, and, and these first two definitions are just basic dictionary definitions that we get from, uh, yeah, basic definitions, and they've really taken them from the church, because this word holy, it's a very churchy word, right? Like, we, we hear holy all the time. We sing about it in songs. A lot of our songs talk about holy. Holy is a word that really belongs, and when people talk about holy, they can say, ooh, like, that person's really holy. Even outside, that's, that's just a word that's used all the time, but maybe we're like, what does holy actually mean? Because holy's actually made itself, you know, a little presence outside of the church, hasn't it? 
It's kind of interesting how holy can be put before some choice words like a cow or um, synonyms for poop. And that's used well outside of the church, this, this term holy. And it's uh, to suggest that something is amazing or shocking or unbelievable. We say holy cow. This word, it, it, it's, it's kind of even lost some of the reverence to it because of the way that it's been taken outside of its original context. So, what does the word holy mean? What does it mean that God is holy? Uh, and so these dictionary definitions, the first one's the Merriam-Webster's, this idea of exalted or worthy of complete devotion as one perfect in goodness and righteousness. We're like, well, those sound like some good churchy words. Good job, Miriam. Uh, and then the next one's just the dictionary.com, exalted or worthy of complete devotion uh, as one, oh, I don't really know how that happened. Well, I do. It was a user error. I was the user. Uh, I am not God. I make mistakes. Who cares? You can look it up on dictionary.com yourself. I was wondering. Like, people were laughing. I was like, oh, surely I didn't say anything that funny. Yeah, there we go. Anyways, at least I got the doctrine one right. Hopefully. We'll see. But when we're talking about God's holiness, this, this doctrine of, of who God is and what it means for him to be holy, is that God's holiness means that he is separated from sin and devoted to seeking his own honor. And so in this definition, it contains both this relational quality, um, so relating to something as being separate from uh, ordinary activities and devoted to God, but we also see a moral quality in that first part of being separated from sin or evil in devotion. The devotion piece is to the good of God's own honor or glory. And so when we're looking at the very first pages of our Bible, that problem of evil and sin enters creation on the first few pages. And for this series, we've gone to the first few pages of our Bibles often um, because I think it is so important that sets up for who God is and who we are uh, in light of him. So God creates everything, and it is beautiful and good. And then he created man and woman. They are his image bearers. He has put his image on them. That is the only thing of creation that he has said, you are to bear my image. And he gives them dominion over the earth. He gives them this ability to rule like he does. Something that they can reflect him into the rest of creation. This creation was good and it was for his glory. His glory was on display and is on display in creation. And the goodness of it, he was giving as a gift so generously to his image bearers. But we know that in Genesis 3, the image bearers, that they transgress this order in which the creator who has the only right to bring order and to give the order and the structure and the boundaries of his good creation, they transgressed this order which the creator set out for their good. And they trusted this deceiving promise from the serpent. They trusted what the serpent was saying, that God was withholding his best from them. Uh, and, the, and the, what the serpent was telling them, that, that this would actually make you like God. Something that we grasp at often, that we are not to grasp at, that we just spent a whole half of the series talking about how we are to submit to it and to worship him in that. 
but they grasp at it. This isn't even something that is Satan's to offer. He has no authority to even offer them this kind of power because he does not possess it. He is not God. And so from this point in history on, sin and evil has entered the world. And there is not a single thing in creation that is untouched by the curse of sin and evil. So I want you to think about this with me for a minute. We, everybody in this room, and everybody after Adam and Eve, are born into a sinful and cursed world. Think about that for a minute. There has never been a moment that any of us have ever experienced where the curse of sin was not present in our lives, in this world, in everything around us. Adam and Eve are the only ones who know what it was like for this creation to be untainted by the curse of sin. So for us... It's something that has been a part of our lives always. And the challenge with that, as if there was only one, there's many, but one of the challenges with that is that it can be easy for us then to just be so used to it, to just have kind of this apathetic view of sin. Yeah, this is how life's always been. Yeah, things are always hard. There's always been sickness. There's always been disease. There's always been challenge. There's always been strife in relationship. There's always been these things. I've always struggled with this. I, I, and we can kind of just start making this apathetic view of like, yeah, it's, what's the big deal? Things really aren't that bad. Things could be a lot worse. Well, we've seen moments in history where things are a lot worse. Surely things aren't really that bad right now because X, Y, and Z aren't going on like they were then. Or, or it could be to this potential. My sin isn't really a big deal. It doesn't affect me that much or it doesn't affect others that much. It's this idea that this apathetic view of sin that we are all capable of and all guilty of at times, it's a result of a diminished view of God's holiness. And so that's what we want to look at tonight. We want to look at what is the holiness of God. The word holy, it appears in our Bible almost 700 times. That's a lot. You can count them tonight if you can't sleep. Um, 700 times. And the verb form, so holiness being, you know, an attribute, or not an attribute, an adjective describing something um, holiness or even a noun. It could be a noun or an adjective. But when we get the verb form of the word, that's the word sanctify. We've heard sanctify a lot. We've talked about it in other series. That appears an additional 200 times in our Bible. This is a word. That's why I'm saying when we're talking about holiness, it is repeated over and over and over again. So we're going to look at just some of the ways with some of these definitions of how we are looking at God's holiness means that he is separated from sin and devoted to seeking his own honor. When we talk about holy, a lot of times the definitions that will be given for us like holy means set apart, which it does. And that's where we get he is separated. He is set apart from sin and evil. He is so completely other from sin and evil. He is holy purity. He is the only holy purity. And set apart is good, but if we stop there, we've missed the, the, the 
uh, whole meaning of the definition. What is it set apart from and what is it set apart to is that devoted piece. We cannot miss the devoted piece, that he is devoted to seeking his own honor. And so we're going to look at how it's just a couple areas where the Bible uses holy um, to get a better understanding of the meaning. God himself is the most holy. He is the most holy one. He is called the holy one of Israel in the Psalms over and over again. In the book of Isaiah, 25 times alone, he is referred to as the holy one of Israel. One of the first times that we see the word holy is back in Genesis 2-3. Um, it says there in the creation account, uh, um, he's talking about God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Um, so when we're thinking about that, when we're seeing something as set apart and devoted, we have the six days that God created and then on the seventh day he rested. And so when we come to, uh, to the Ten Commandments in Exodus, um, in Exodus 20, the fourth commandment, so we see that in creation, that he set it apart and that it was holy. And then in the fourth commandment, we get, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is with you. Within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and he made it holy. He set it apart from the other six days for it to be devoted to the worship of the holy God. Are you seeing this set apart and devoted to something? The Sabbath day was, set, was made holy because it was set apart from the ordinary activities of the world and dedicated to uh, God's service. Other places that we see is the place where God dwelt was holy. Psalm 24.3 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? In Exodus, we also, after this, get the uh, instructions for constructing the tabernacle, and then later there would be the temple, and it's this place where God, where the holy God would dwell with his people. And the tabernacle was a place that was separate from evil and sin. It was set apart and dedicated or devoted to God's service. We get this very visual, Israel, this chosen set-apart people for the devotion of God. They get this very real representation. Um, does this thing have a laser? Maybe. I don't know. But if you guys can see before that first part, that first part was called the holy place, and which was set apart for services to God, and God commanded there to be a veil. So you see in the back, it's not fully close so that you can see the back part. But then there is this veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place, or, or we call it also the holy of holies. And the purpose of this holy of holies, if you see that little gold thing in the back there, it's got some poles on it and some things on top. That's where the mercy seat was. This is where God's presence would descend and he would meet with his people. 
And there was only one time in the year where the high priest would go in on the Day of Atonement. So again, we're seeing this part that this tabernacle, this was something for Israel to set up. Where God would come and he would meet with his people. And that there was this holiness. When we get to the end of Exodus, after they have constructed this tabernacle, this place where God is coming to meet with his sinful people, Moses can't go in because of God's holiness. He cannot go in. He cannot enter uh, into this place. And so uh, then we get the, lo- the book of Leviticus, and we see all this way that there has been now made a way for people to purify themselves, to come in to this holy place, this place that has been set apart and dedicated to the service of God. Um, we're going to see more on that in a video, but then just some of the other things. When we talk about the holiness of God and when we're trying to understand um, how, how his holiness is so uh, dominant throughout Scripture, we get verses like this uh, in Isaiah 6. We're given these visions of these grand angelic beings and creatures who circle the throne of God. And in Isaiah 6, it says, above him stood the seraphim. And each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the same thing is happening when we get to the end of our Bibles in Revelation 4, verse 8. It says, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes and all around and within and day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And why we, we look at that, and when we're thinking about holiness, and then the rest of the attributes that we are going to talk about in this series, is this is the only attribute of God that is repeated three times like this. In the writings of this culture, there was great significance just in the writing style of repeating words of how that, how that brought significance to what was being said, um, to, to draw attention, it's being repeated. This is the only time where you get a three-peat of, of an attribute, the holiness of God. It paints every other attribute. There's nowhere else in the Bible that does not say that God is love, love, love. God is justice, justice, justice. God is mercy, mercy, mercy. He is all of those things. But what the Bible repeats more than anything is that God is holy, holy, holy. Turn with me to Psalm 99. We're just going to read through Psalm 99. I just came across that in my studying for this week. Um... It's a good place for us to go. I can't count. I don't know what number 99 comes before or after. All right. It says, The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. 
The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have ex- executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Um, when we see this, I, I, I love looking uh, just even in the stanza of seeing these other attributes Uh, that they start to talk about, to be praised of this is God's holiness. We see your holiness in these other attributes of your justice uh, and and your equity. And and that the proper response to God's holiness is worship. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of cloud he spoke to them. And kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. Other attributes where we are seeing that he is faithful and that he is the one who does what he says he will do. And yet here were these humans who were not holy, that they were sinners, that they were people who had transgressed against the Lord. But they were able, he made a way for them to cry out to him. Oh Lord our God, you answered them and you were a forgiving God to them but an avenger of their wrongdoings. We see this, uh, this, this complex but beautiful piece of God's character that he is forgiving, and yet he still does something about sins. He doesn't just brush it on the rug or just get rid of it. That in his holiness, he still uh, has to be an avenger of the wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship him at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. And so our God is a holy God. He is completely and utterly morally perfect without evil and sin. He's completely set apart and he is devoted to his glory. And so when we behold who God is, he is holy. Holy is the way of God. To be holy, he does not conform to this other standard, but he himself is the standard. He is absolutely holy with an infinite and incomprehensible fullness of purity. And so as we meditate, as we're going to meditate on the other attributes for the rest of the series, we have to understand them through his holiness. We cannot understand love apart from God's holiness. We cannot take our corrupted ideas of love or our human terms for love and and let that be the standard of God's love. No, we have to know that when God loves, it is with a holy love. And we cannot understand his justice through any human terms that we have uh, come up with because of our corrupted ideas of justice that come across this evil and sinful world. What we have to understand about justice is that it is a holy justice. And so when we look at a video like this one, when we see God's holiness uh, and our impurity but needing to be made pure before him, and then we look at the gospel and we see Christ and what he did in order to impart his purity, in order to impart his, uh, his holiness to us, what is the application? So what? How does God's holiness change me or affect the way I live? And the short answer to that is be holy. Let's pray. Just kidding. Now, later on in the New Testament, in 1 Peter, why does that look weird? In 1 Peter, uh, we get this. Uh, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also 
be holy in your conducts. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter is writing to this group of people who have received salvation. They have received the gospel message. They've received salvation. And he's encouraging them with this reality that's true for every person who is a Christian. That they have not just been saved from their sin or from their depravity. That's not where it stops. They have not just been saved from their sin and that's all that needed to happen. But they have been saved to holiness. And he's quoting this from numerous places that we see in the Old Testament, specifically in Leviticus, like we saw from the video, that Leviticus, with all those laws, that book that we like to skip over because we're like, I don't really understand what all these laws mean. It's this way that paints this picture of a holy God. And all throughout Leviticus, there's this call. This isn't a New Testament thing. It's this idea that's all throughout the Bible of, of God calling his people to holiness, to reflect his holiness. And so God desires holiness of his people. And he has been faithful in his mission of bringing about holiness. We see as he goes through the prophets, he's giving this message of holiness and what that's going to look like. How is that actually going to be accomplished as you continue to fail this law system over and over again? This mission of bringing about his holiness within those who he has called. And so we call this sanctification. So if you remember, we talked about sanctification at the beginning as being the verb form of holiness. You could translate sanctify to make holy. So at conversion, when we become a Christian, we are justified. We've talked about this before, that at at conversion, you've become a Christian. It wasn't because of anything you did. You didn't make yourself holy. Christ's holiness was given to you as a free gift of his grace. That we are justified and we're in this positional holiness so that when God looks at us, he sees us as holy because of Christ's holiness being imparted to us. So we're not holy on our own, but Christ, who is fully God and fully man, is perfectly holy and has purchased our salvation by laying down his holy and perfect life for those who would believe in him. And he has given us his holiness, making us pure before our holy God. This idea of positional holiness before God. But this new life that we've been given in salvation is one of walking in holiness that we have been saved to. And so this is an idea of practical holiness where abundant life is found. And this is God's will for our life. If you are like me and many other Christians, you have asked, what's God's will for my life? What's God's plan for my life? What's God's will for my life? And we may ask this in regards to decisions that we have to make. When we're trying to decide maybe like what classes should I be taking? Should I be taking these certain classes in order to get this certain kind of diploma? Or when we're making decisions about like should I date this person? I don't know. Like what is, is this in God's will for my life? What college should I be going to? What's God's will for what college I go to? What should I study? What's God's will? I don't want to be outside God's will. What job should I get? Who should I marry? Where should I live? What's God's will for my life? And so, when we come to our Bibles, if you want to flip with me, go ahead and turn to 1 Thessalonians 4. First Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 3. 
when we're asking this question of what is God's will for my life, he makes it very clear. It's very plain. It's very clear to us right here. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That's God's will for your life, your sanctification. For you to be made holy. That you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand, solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. God's will for your life, listening closely, God's will for your life is that you grow in holiness. He does care about all of those decisions that we make. He's not like, oh, but... Brooklyn better make the right decision to be in my will. No, it's this mindset shift that we uh, need to approach these decisions with. So rather than am I making the right choice that is in God's will, what these verses tell us is that what his will is, is our holiness, for us to be growing in our holiness. So it's not this matter of worrying, am I making the right choice that is in God's will? but a mindset shift that says, how will this decision that I make impact my growth in holiness? Will it encourage it or will it discourage it? If I'm choosing to date this person or to marry this person, are they somebody who I'm going to grow in my holiness with or is it going to discourage my growth in holiness and pursuing the things of God's holiness? If I'm looking at this kind of job because, and, and this kind of major, I want to choose this kind of college to go to. Is it because I'm pursuing something outside of God's holiness? Or is it I'm looking and seeing, yes, that will grow me in God's holiness that he has for me. Again, so it's this mindset shift that when we're approaching these decisions, God's will for our lives is clear. Grow in holiness. Grow in looking more and more like Christ. As we are his image bearers, we are being transformed from our sinful nature. We are being transformed into the image of Christ. These decisions that I'm making, don't worry, we're not making them by ourselves. Verse 8, Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. He gives us his Holy Spirit. God no longer dwells in a temple behind a veil, but the veil was torn When Christ was on the cross, we see that very clearly in the Gospels that the veil was torn and his people have been made holy by the blood of Jesus. And now God dwells in his believers who are pouring out their life as we saw in the video. That now we, by having the Spirit living in us and transforming us in holiness, are pouring out to other people by the power of his Holy Spirit. So as Christians, followers of Jesus, we have this new identity given to us that we're to live out of. Peter goes on to say, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own. That's God's own possession. 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. As Christians, we have this new identity in our holiness to live out of. We have been called by God. We have been set apart from evil. We have been called out of darkness, out of evil, set apart from evil and sinful ways of the world, but not to be this holy huddle that just sticks together and says, evil world, holy huddle, stay in here. It's dangerous out there. No, we have been set apart from the darkness and evil of this world with a purpose. We are a holy priesthood, not a holy huddle that avoids the world. A holy priesthood devoted to what? proclaiming the excellencies of God's mercy and grace that we have all been recipients of, that we were not holy uh, on our own. We're not this holier than thou that the church gets accused of often. No, we are made holy only by the mercy and grace that we have received. And now we come together and we celebrate those and we encourage each other to grow in our holiness, to pursue holiness, not to just stay here and only do that together, but then to go and proclaim it, to be devoted to God's work of spreading the message of his holiness and his grace and his mercy and his love and his justice and his wrath and everything that is beautiful and entirely pure of God, to take that message to the world, devoted, set apart, devoted to the work of God. So to wrap it up, two things. Two things that we want to we wanna look at as we, we think about holiness. Seek and worship the holiness of God. As we read our Bibles cover to cover, one thing you'll notice, what are these Bibles called? Not just any Bible. The Holy Bible. I am not kidding when I say this book, cover to cover, will paint our picture for the rest of our days of what holiness looks like. That we fix our eyes on his holiness. This Bible, this Holy Bible, as you read it, you will be confronted with what is holy and what is not. The next thing, we chase holiness We ask questions like, am I growing in holiness? Are we as a church growing in holiness? Are we as a high school group, are we growing in holiness? Is our small group growing in holiness? When we think about sin, when we've talked about when we started off, the very first pages of Scripture, it gives us what our problem is. It's the sin that we have sinned against a holy God and that that uh, has put a damage in our relationship with the Holy God, but Christ came to bridge that gap. He came to make a way back into the holiness of God. And so when we're killing sin in our lives, when we're, when we're confronted with what is not holy as we come to this holy book, we're killing sin not by focusing just on our sin. That's going to lead to frustration, We fix our eyes on a holy God and walking in his ways that have been given us power by the Holy Spirit. So these two go together in order to chase holiness, to run after holiness, not to say, ah, how close can I get to sin before I'm actually sinning? 
No, as people with this new identity, as these people who are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, we're not saying, how close can I get to sin before I'm actually seeing? No, we are running in the opposite direction, and we are chasing holiness, and we're linking arms with our brothers and sisters in this room and saying, hey, let's pursue the Lord, and not by our own power, but by the power of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. And how do we know what holiness looks like? We are seeking and we are beholding the way that a holy God has revealed himself to us. So we're going to close with one song. I'm going to invite the band back up, um, and then we will get a chance to discuss this in our small groups. God, you are holy, holy, holy. Lord, we will be singing that for the rest of our days on this earth, and Lord, for all eternity, night and day, we will never cease to behold your holiness, to to worship you. Lord, we thank you so much for sending Jesus. Lord, we were impure. Our sin was great, but your mercy was great. You provided Jesus, who was perfectly holy, fully God and fully man, to take the place to take the punishment for our sin, for our transgression that transgressed against you, holy God. And that by believing and trusting him, you've so graciously given us your holiness that we can stand before you justified. And Lord, that you call us to an abundant life. Lord, that our sin, it leads to death, but your holiness, it leads to life. Lord, help us to have a right view of our sin. Kill in us the apathy that we are so tempted to place on our sin. And Lord, give us a desire for your holiness. Lord, would we be a high school group that is constantly encouraging each other, calling each other up to live out the identity as a royal priesthood that we are. Lord, we love you, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.